Tom Luce's long career has had quite a few twists and turns, from the private sector as a lawyer working with Ross Perot, to key roles in the Texas government, to a fervent education policymaker in the George W. Bush administration, and to the nonprofit sector as founder of organizations like the National Math and Science Initiative and now Texas 2036. Both each turn, he has stayed committed to a core belief that all Americans deserve the opportunities brought through education. Unfortunately, it's still too often the case that our kids don't get the same head start that I got. And that's not right. That's not fair competition. I just became convinced that not only was it elements of injustice, but it wasn't good for our state, wasn't good for our country, and our economic system, which I'm a great believer in, was not going to work if we did not have equal opportunity for everybody. We'll talk about education and opportunity in today's turbulent world. And Tom takes us down memory lane, sharing stories like when he carried one of the original copies of the Magna Carta across the Atlantic as part of his carry-on luggage, and the social faux pas he committed the first time he met George H.W. Bush. I'm Andrew Kaufman, and this is The Strategist, presented by the George W. Bush Presidential Center. Our conversation today is broken up into two parts. First, we talked with Tom in person at the Bush Center not long before we shut down to slow the spread of COVID-19. We then recently gave him a call to get an update on our conversation, which you'll hear is the second part of this episode. First off, welcome to Kevin Sully Sullivan, Senior Advisor at the Bush Center and former White House Communications Director, who is making his co-hosting debut on The Strategist today. Sully, it's about time you made time for us. Hey, thanks for having me. Looking forward to it. And our guest today is Tom Luce. So give me a minute. This introduction is going to take a second. He's a difficult man to introduce in that if you don't list enough of the roles and awards, you don't really get a sense for the impact he's made. But if we listed them all, we'd be here all day. So a few. He started out as an attorney and founding managing partner at Hughes & Luce. The Dallas Morning News called him a, quote, education visionary who worked in the Bush administration as assistant secretary of education and in multiple, five actually, I believe. Is that right? Five? That's correct. Texas governor administrations, five governors. He's founded major philanthropic initiatives like Just for Kids, the National Center for Educational Accountability, National Math and Science Initiative, the Meadows Health Policy Institute, and most recently, Texas 2036, which is finding nonpartisan ideas and solutions to make our great state better. He's a professor, having taught at a little school called Harvard, also right here on the SMU campus, and he won the Linz Award, recognizing enduring civic or humanitarian efforts benefiting Dallas. We're just skimming the surface, so Tom, thank you for joining us. You must have some amazing stories to tell. Well, I don't know about that, but I've been blessed to be born and raised in Texas and at a great time in the history of our state. I've just been very blessed. Well, Tom, we'll get to Texas 2036 in a few minutes, which is your most recent big, big challenge you've taken on. But first, I'd like to talk about your journey, both professionally and personally. You've had really just quite a ride. What's interesting about it is that on multiple occasions, you stepped away from your law practice or for whatever you were doing to take on a new public service initiative. And so let's start with that. I mean, why? Well, I just felt an enormous sense of finally uh, an understanding of how blessed I had been to have been raised um, at the time I was, in the way I was, and how many people were factors in my life 
that changed the trajectory of my life. And it was just really important to me to pay that back. And the number of people who intervened in my life were just, it was amazing. I was raised by a single-parent mother. My father was an alcoholic, didn't really live at home. And that was back when <laughs> there wasn't even a phrase, single-parent mothers. Uh, and most of the households were husband and wife. and But yet, at various points in time, various Men appeared in my life, whether they're basketball coaches or a guy I met at college night. Or this is a wonderful story. I went to college night in my in my high school, and my aspiration was to go to Alpine State College on a scholarship and play baseball. And I met a young dashing guy by the name of Dick Bass, who was a graduate from Yale. I was the only one who appeared that night at the Yale booth. And he said, you ought to go to Yale. I didn't know Yale from Sikkim. And <laughs> he said, uh, no, no, you're a Yale man. And he said, I'm going to get you in Yale. And you need to. And he started sending me books. And, of course, he didn't get me in Yale. I didn't have the grades to go to Yale. But all of a sudden, my horizons were, were raised. I, I played for a basketball coach who said, to start on my team, you got to have a B average. Loves a C student. And I said, why do we have to? They don't have to do that at our district component. And he said, well, if you're not smart enough to make a B, you'll have turnovers. I don't know what his rationale was, but I made a B, you know, so, so I could play basketball. And so just throughout my life, various people intervened in my life. And then when I got ready to go to college, I didn't have the funds to go to college. A group of businessmen got together and arranged me to get a scholarship to VMI to play baseball and basketball so I went to college and then Dick Bass reappeared in my life and enabled me to work through I went to SMU undergrad and law school but I had to work 40 hours a week to pay for my education Pam and I were married when I was 19 so I had to work my way through college and law school go to night law school and just at all stages of my life people were intervening and giving me a leg up and then I was profoundly struck by later in the 80s, um, uh, thanks to my client, Ross Perot, I was given the opportunity to travel the state and learn about public school education for the majority of kids. And I saw that millions of kids had not gotten the same opportunity that I'd gotten. And that just convicted me that I'd been extraordinarily blessed. How did those modest beginnings, you know, you've talked publicly in the past that your mom had some mental health issues. She did. She was, you know, hardworking, uh, raising you and your sister, right? Law school at night, you know, this didn't come easily for you. How did that, uh, you mentioned the people who intervened to, to lend a helping hand, but how did those beginnings that, that you had play into your pursuit of public service? Well, I, I think it really did in a sense that I, I had to, I guess out of necessity, develop a worth eth work ethic. And I just became, uh, and I understood how many people were helping me. And second of all, I don't know where it came from, but I've always had a great interest in history and political science. <laughs> I tell this to myself, it sounds like such a geek, but... Uh, <laughs> When I was in middle school, I read Winston Churchill's World War II memoirs, and I was just blown away by, you know, his writing skill and the stories he was telling. And I always had a sense of, you know, 
what was happening in the world. And that made a big impact on me. And then I think through that, I began to understand, you know, I think when you're young, you kind of think, well, gee, all this happened because I was young and smart and all that stuff. But I was really riding an ocean wave that other people created for me. I've tried to tell my grandsons the day I was born, the German troops marched into Paris. And I, I remember, I wish I'd asked my mother, what in the world was she thinking my future would be like? And I wasn't old enough to know that, you know, millions of people lost their lives preserving freedom and democracy for me. And, you know, so <laughs> what, what could I do to at least try to approach paying that back for crying out loud? So you had an interest in history, you had an interest in politics, uh-huh. you know, the people who know you today maybe look at you as a, a policy wonk trapped in the, in the career or in the body of, a, of, an, a, of an attorney. But how did your interest in politics, and, and this kind of leads to your first meeting with future President George H.W. Bush uh, as a very, when, when you were a very young man, tell us how that happened. I always had an interest in politics, but I I decided very early on, I guess because of my upbringing and the fact I was married when I was 19 and had two children by the time I was 21, that I had to make a career before I could go into politics or public service. I felt that was important to provide for my family. And so I, I went to law school, began a legal career, but I was always interested in politics. And in the 60s, Again, as part of working my way through school, I was hired to work on what was called the Draft Goldwater Committee that was instrumental in winning the nomination for Barry Goldwater to be the GOP nominee in 1964. And part of my job was to be in San Francisco at the convention. And my goal in being there was to meet this young, dashing uh, upcoming political star that everybody was talking about named George Herbert Walker Bush. It was the first time he'd run for office. He'd announced for the United States Senate. And I really wanted to work on his campaign. And so my goal in San Francisco was to meet uh, who we now later call 41. And I went to a Texas reception with a goal of meeting him. And I'm in this room and he comes in the door. I got there early so I wouldn't miss him. And he comes in the door and he seems to be making eye contact with me. And I thought, my goodness, he's heard about me. <laughs> and, and he w- walks all the way over to me, making eye contact with me. And I said, here's my big break. And he put his arm around me. He said, young man, your fly's unzipped. <laughs> I wanted to crawl out of the cow palace. I literally want, I've never been so mortified in my life. I got to later tell him that story in the White House when he was president. And I said, Mr. President, I know, but for that one incident, I'd have been in your cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> that was the tiebreaker. It was considering it was, you and it, one other guy. Yeah, I was like, it no, was one other go. guy. <laughs> you just can't trust this guy out in public. I'm sure is what he said. Not the start you were looking for for your <laughs> no, it was not yeah for your career in politics or so policy. I didn't run for office for quite a while. <laughs> <laughs> it took you a while to get that in the rearview mirror. So so you Hughes and Lewis Ross Perot becomes your your client, and that just brought about had to bring about all kinds of uh, adventures and and great stories. Yeah, uh, that was a wonderful break for a young lawyer. Uh, when he gave us our first piece of business, uh, I just started my law firm law firm a year before um we had five lawyers and all of a sudden we're representing ross perot eds and it was just a 
you know, it was like a rocket ride. I mean, uh, people have forgotten, but I mean, Ross Perot was kind of the equivalent of Michael Dell, Steve Jobs, and Bill Gates all rolled into one. I mean, he was kind of the first tech big figure. Uh, you know, there was IBM, and then there was Ross Perot. And uh, so it was just an enormous break in, in my life and in my career. And it led me to a lot of wonderful challenges, opportunities. You know, I got to sue the government of Iran. I got to purchase uh, the Islamic Republic of Iran and secure a judgment, recover the money. I got to buy the Magna Carta on behalf of Ross. Okay, hold on a second. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just drop that in as if it's that, nothing. And, and eBay didn't exist then. so No, it did not. Ross got a call one day from Stanley Marcus's daughter, and she said, Ross, I've got a friend in England who wants to sell a Magna Carta, and I think you ought to buy it. And he said, well, okay. <laughs> he said, um, he said, how much do they want for it? And she said, I don't, I don't know. He said, well, it's worth a million five hundred thousand dollars to me. Tell them that. And uh, what year was this? Nineteen eighty-five, maybe eighty-four, right. eighty-five. Million five goes pretty far. Yeah. goes pretty far in yeah. eighty-five. And uh, she called back and said, well. They'll, they'll take that. And he said, well, he said, I'm going to send my lawyer over there. He said, I want to make sure it's real. And uh, if he said, if he can assure me it's a Magna Carter, then I'll, we got a deal. So Ross calls me at the office. He said, Tom, I just bought the Magna Carter, and I need you to go over there and verify that it's the real thing. And I said, Ross, this may surprise you. I don't have anything in my form files about how to verify Magna Carters. <laughs> He said, uh, just follow your nose. Go over there and figure it out. And so I did, and um, we verified it. And um, But it was, a, golly, it was a wonderful experience for me because, you know, I was a student of history. And first thing I did was read uh, Churchill's history of the English-speaking people and understand the importance of the Magna Carta. And it's a great story after I uh, completed the purchase and verified it and all that. I had to get an export license and I called Ross and I said, okay, it's, we bought it. It's yours. I said, uh, you want Brinks to make, bring it back? He said, no. He said, just bring it back. He said, the best security is no security. Bring it back with you on the airplane. <laughs> so I get it on American airlines and I put it in the coat closet and sit across from the coat closet. So I'm afraid to go to sleep. You know, I don't know what I thought somebody would do with it, you know, I guess jump out of an airplane. But anyway, <laughs> I get to DFW Airport, and I'm going through customs, and they say, do you have anything to declare? And I said, yeah, <laughs> yeah, the Magna Carta. <laughs> I uh, said, yeah. right, buddy, step over here. Yeah, we here. got a jokester here. <laughs> right, step over here. Uh, it's a good thing it wasn't happening today. I'd probably get arrested. <laughs> What's well, kind of interesting is, as you tell these stories, you've said that you're writing this, you've written this wave of goodwill. You kind of glossed over in the story with President H.W. Bush that you've kind of you've kind of said all oh, these people helping you along, but there's something about you that's probably making them want to help you. Like you, you kind of gloss over. You went to this convention to do this. Like you had some gumption. Is that a conscious thing that you've developed over the years, or is this is who you are? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, I've I've always uh, my grandkids get tired of me saying this, but I say it to them over and over. I always say you'll never exceed your own expectations. Mm, I like that. And when you think about it, that's true. If you tell a kid they can broad jump a certain amount of feet, that's how much they'll broad jump. <laughs> if you set the bar on the high jump, that's how far they'll jump. 
And uh, I don't know. I just think having expectations of yourself is important. I don't mean that in a cocky way. It's just, and I, you know, my motto is the worst that can happen, and I've, I've followed this in hiring. I always think you ought to go after the best talent. And the worst thing that happened to you is somebody said, no, thank you. Well, so what? You've made a friend. You've made a connection. You learned something. And I just think it's important in terms of setting expectations for yourself, for the organization. And somehow, you know, I always thought I'd be the starting quarterback for the home park football team. I wasn't. (laughs) Uh, But I always thought I'd be. And I always thought I'd be a great college basketball player. I wasn't. Um, but I always aspired to to want to do those things. Well, that kind of ties also to education, where right. I think one of the, President Bush's famous lines, the soft bigotry of low expectations. Totally. And I, I mean, I was always so simpatico. He wasn't learning it from me, but I was simpatico with him about education. I could always tell it came from his gut. He believed those things. It was in the core of his being. And he always talked about standards and expectations. And it's, it's really true. If we set our bar low for our kids, that's what they'll achieve. If we set them higher, they'll, they'll achieve them at a higher rate. You know, Sully, so as sports fan you are, you know what happened when Roger Bannister broke the four-minute mile. Everybody else started breaking it. <laughs> Everybody else broke it. And it was believed to be you know, unfathomable. Until unfathomable. He and then, you know, now we got high school kids breaking the four men in mile. So this is so, so now we're, you know, keeping on the education theme. In nineteen eighty three, Governor White sets up a select committee on public education reform. Ross Perot's involved to to fund it, as I recall. He was chairing a commission made up of various people, but he made the decision. Uh, a great decision. He said, I don't want this staff by the education agency. I'm willing to pay for it myself. And so, Tom, I want you to hire and recruit a staff because I want us to have the best research possible, the best experts from all over the country. I don't want to rely upon the existing system to tell me how we're doing. And so, so you leave Hughes and Loose for 18 months. Step away? Yes, uh, because Ross Perot called me and said, Tom, I've just told the governor of the state that you volunteered to take a leave of absence from the law firm (laughs) (laughs) to run this commission for me. And I did a quick calculation of the percentage of revenue he was of the law firm, and I told him I thought that was a great idea. (laughs) (laughs) I was drafted, in other words. So so you were drafted. (laughs) You went down there, and you had an interesting first-round draft choice with this elite staff that you were going to build. Yes, her name was Margaret Spellings. Oh, I've met her. <laughs> yes. And uh, subsequently. Now, the way she likes to tell the story, everything works out in the right way because I eventually worked for her instead of she working for me. Right. And she says that meritocracy, you know, is the proof uh, that she ended up being the Secretary of Education and not me. Well, all three of us around the table here have worked for her. <laughs> that is true. And when you stop working for her, she tells you on your way out, don't forget, you still work for me. <laughs> uh, so what was that experience like? This is where you really get into data, which has kind of fueled your work and all the public service that you do. 
What did you learn about Texas and then at that time? And maybe say, I know pass, no play happened then. Well, I learned a lot. I mentioned earlier, first of all, it opened my eyes to how many kids had not gotten the same opportunities that I had. And it was heartbreaking. I mean, I saw, I mean, I'm a firm believer philosophically in equal opportunity, not necessarily equal outcomes, but equal opportunity. But I learned very quickly that not all kids have equal opportunity, and they don't line up at the starting line the same way in the same place that I did. And that was really true in our state in the 80s. Unfortunately, it's still too often the case that our kids don't get the same head start that I got. And that's not right. That's not fair competition. I just became convinced that not only was it elements of injustice, but it wasn't good for our state, wasn't good for our country, and our economic system, which I'm a great believer in, was not going to work if we did not have equal opportunity for everybody. And Thomas Jefferson, I don't remember the exact quote, said, you know, the future of our democracy depends upon the success of our public education system. And that's true for a lot of reasons. Now, we'll talk a little bit more about that when we when we talk about 2036 and where things stand today. But... Sort of the next thing that happened is you decided to run for governor yourself in 1990, right? For yes. The-, I, the way I put it, I went temporary. I had a temporary bout of insanity, <laughs> and uh, I uh, ran for governor and um, lost. And uh, but it was a it was a it shocks people when I say it was a great experience. I wouldn't have traded it for anything. I learned so much about the state. It was a great family experience. I met people that are still my friends today from all over the state. I learned a lot about the state. I just had a wonderful experience. And that's where you met, really got to know George W. Bush. I did. It was real interesting. I'd really known his, I'd known his father, and I think I'd probably met uh, President Bush or 43 previously, but we certainly were not uh, friends. And he called me out of the blue one day about month after I'd announced for governor. And he said, Tom, he said, we don't know each other well enough for me to make this call, but I'm going to do it anyway. He said, I understand you're a little nervous about Kenny. He already had a nickname. You know how he is in nicknames. My son's name was Ken. He said, I understand you're a little nervous about Kenny uh, working on your campaign. And I said, well, I am, sir. I said, frankly, um, I said, the main reason is he's in his 20s and he's married and he quit his job without talking to me about it and said he was going to work full time on my campaign without pay. And I said, I'm not sure exactly how that's going to work, George. And he said, well, he said, let me share something with you. He said, it's the best thing that ever happened for my experience with my father was to work on his campaign and for a change, be able to help him as opposed to him helping me. And he said, you let Kenny help you, and it'll be a wonderful thing for you. And I did, and he was right. So so then sort of the, the next big inflection point is is now you're helping George H.W. Bush run for president. And then out of the blue, this lightning bolt happens where the other really important relationship in your life, Ross Perot, decides he's going to throw in in 1992 for president, and you leave to go run that campaign. Tell us about how you navigated that experience. Very carefully. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, um, Ross called and said, uh, Tom, I've never asked you for a favor, 
and I'm asking you as a favor to come help me run my presidential campaign. I've made this Larry King appearance. I'm being flooded with telephone calls, inquiries, and um, I need some help. And would you come help me? I uh, sat down with him and said, you know, Ross, I'm uh, really indebted to you and uh, treasure our friendship and our relationship. But I said, you need to know going in that I will not, I will do my best to run your campaign, but I will not speak ill or be in any way negative about George Bush. I will do my best to help you win, but I'm not going to, I just, I can't do it. I don't, you know, I don't believe, uh, you know, I just wouldn't be very good at it because I don't. I don't feel that way. He said, I understand, and that's not your job. I need somebody to run the, make sure the railroad runs and runs the campaign. So how does Vice President Bush take this news that, that you're throwing in with the, an, an opponent that's clearly going to hurt his chances? Well, I guess the proof is in the pudding. When Ross dropped out of the race in the summer of 92, my assistant came in my office and said, the White House is on the phone and the President Bush wants to speak to you. And I thought, well, it was probably somebody like Sully pulling a prank on me. It really <laughs> wasn't the White House. But she said, no, it really is the White House. And the President wants to speak to you. And I thought, oh, me. And he comes on the phone. He said, Tom, this is George Bush. And he said, I just heard Ross dropped out of the race. And I just want you to know that I, more than most people, value loyalty. I know why you did what you did. And welcome back. No hard feelings. Wow. Yeah. And I said vice president. He was obviously the president running for re-election. You need to study your history. I do. (laughs) Now, uh, but then there's another wrinkle in the story in that Ross Perot re-enters the campaign for for president. Then what happens? Well, I I had already decided that I would not go back and help, and Ross understood that. But I'd already, you know, made a commitment to help the re-election campaign of President Bush, so I stuck to that. But if we fast forward a little bit, then you find yourself in the Bush 43 administration as the Assistant Secretary of Education. How did that relationship work? How did you feel at that point in your career as, as at, a pretty, at a pretty high post in the, in the administration? First of all, I felt very humble and gratified. You know, I'd worked 25, 30 years on education. And Margaret had been named Secretary of Education. I knew we had an education president. And Margaret called and said, I got the perfect job for you. I, I want you to work on budget and policy. And I had a conversation with her, and, and um, she said, um, you know, <laughs> it's real funny. I remember I told her, I said, Margaret, I, I, I'll do it. But I said, I don't want to give any speeches. I don't want to travel. I want to work <laughs> on budget and policy. And uh, she, she honored that. And uh, I'll tell you a funny story. When I was getting ready to be sworn in, I had all my grandchildren come up, my children and and uh, I'm down in the education building, Sully. You remember that building? And At the time, it was known as Federal Building Number 6. Number 6. The least glamorous place in Washington, D.C. <laughs> Correct. With a name to match. <clears throat> yeah. That's right. And uh, my grandsons are walking up the sidewalk, and they're all dressed in blazers and ties, which was a really unusual experience. But I told them to dress up, and I'm down at the security, and uh, the security guard there, woman, uh, 
I said, you see those seven good-looking boys? I said, those are my grandsons. They're coming to see me today. And she said, oh, honey, is today your retirement day? I said, no, it's my start date. (laughs) (laughs) I skewed the average age of the Department of Education, so they're coming in when I did. You made an incredible impact in in the year plus that you were there. And let's, let's talk a little bit about Texas 2036 now. We could listen to these stories all day, but let's talk about what you're doing today. Texas 2036, like what's, what's the mission? What are you all up to? Well, the big vision is we're really up to trying to make sure that my grandchildren and their children have the same opportunities I had. That's a simple way of stating. And I really believe that that's at risk if we don't pay attention to some major issues that have to be addressed. And therefore, I wanted a forward-looking organization, a long-term view of what we needed to do to keep the state the place we love to live and do business. And my experience in public policy is you can't change public policy overnight. I don't care who you are, how persuasive you are. The problems you're dealing with are massive. They're huge. I mean, you know, the public education system alone tries to educate about 5.6 million children, has about 450,000 employees, about 6,800 campuses. I mean, you can't change a system that big. Then you add to that health care and higher education and water and roads And the differing distinction of state government as opposed to federal government, thank goodness, is the state government can't print money and has to balance the budget. And so how they spend a limited amount of resources is really a strategic decision that needs to be based upon long-term thinking and return on investment And in today's political world, long-term may be this afternoon's tweet, or if you're real lucky, next November. Right. And I thought we needed an organization that would say, no, let's talk about what we want the state to be like in 2036. How do we afford it? How do we get there? How do we turn the Queen Mary overnight? I learned through hard experience, you can't, can't turn the Queen Mary overnight. You have to turn it very slowly. And that's what Text 2036 is about, is ensuring the future of our children and grandchildren. I would encourage our listeners to to go to the website, the texas2036.org. Correct. And and look at the data, and it's pretty ominous about what what is coming down the road. The growth of the state is is incredibly impressive, but with that growth comes challenges with every policy area that you're undertaking. Well, one example, we project population will grow from 28 million people today to 40 million, 12 million people. So it also shows we'll be out of water, (laughs) be hard to get to work. We'll run out of educated workforce. You can't build water reservoirs overnight. The education pipeline's 16 years long or 14 or 12. So we better get started. And one of the challenges, and President Bush has talked about this, that the elected officials are not prone, you know, politicians are not used to looking over the horizon. They're worried about the next election. They look at a two-year, a four-year, a six-year window. How do you overcome that? Well, I think we have to do it by building public demand that we think longer term. You know, the way I look at it, public officials respond to public demand. And... 
we need to mobilize a significant portion of our population that is disaffected by the political process or doesn't think the political process speaks to them today. And the way I phrase it to them is, you need a four agenda, F-O-R, so that you can say to public official, this is, you know, the example I use, I've never heard a political candidate yet who says, I'm against education. <laughs> I haven't found anyone who is against mobility. But I want you in the future to hand them this strategic plan and say, young woman, I th- think what you mean by telling me you're for education is you're for this specific plan and these specific changes and then hold them accountable. It really is interesting that so much of our news and our media consumption is focused on national policy when it's our state and local policies that often impact our day-to-day life as much, if not more. Totally. And because of what's happening in Washington, that's even more so today. I mean, you look at the impact California has by by passing laws about data privacy or automobile emissions, all of a sudden General Motors is going to make cars in a different way because it's a big market. Policy is going to be made in state and local governments. And as Texas goes, I really believe this, as Texas goes, so goes the nation. Because we, we are a reflection of the Texas, of the United States economy. We've got the diversity. We've got rural, urban, suburban. Uh, we've got it all. Technology. Technology. I mean, if you can do it in Texas, you can do it anywhere. Last thing for me, Tom, and, and on a personal note, I want to thank you for being the ocean wave in my life. From the time that we met on May 1st, 1996, when Ross Pro Jr. purchased the Mavericks, where I had worked for a long time. And that day was a, the tectonic plates shifted in my life that day through you. And I'm one of those people who have benefited from your generosity and kindness and wisdom. And that went from the Mavericks to Dallas 2012, our effort to came up just a little bit short. The, the Olympics ended up in London in 2012, not well, Dallas. We, it, was in, it was in the universe. Right. We were, you know, and they held the Olympics in 2012. They did. And it was still our time to shine. Uh, you know, the U.S. Department of Education, which led to my great adventures in, in, with President Bush in, in Washington and here. And just, you know, personally, I'm grateful to you for all that you've done for me and for my family as one of the, just one of the, one of the great people uh, that I've had the privilege to get, get to know. And I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I want to ask you, if we went down the list just for the kids which advocated for kids in, in Austin, the National Math and Science Initiative, which is now in 40-something states and, and incredibly successful, the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute you started, all of these big things, now Texas 2036. So you go around town and you ask people to join in, whether it's to donate financially or to do something to help advance all of these efforts. Why do they keep saying Yes when you show up with your newest big, bold idea? Golly, I, I, I really don't. I'm really humbled by it. I really mean that sincerely. I, I, um, I, I don't know exactly why. I, I do think relationships are important. Uh, trust is important. I try to set, tell my grandchildren that uh, every day is important in terms of building your own credibility and integrity and relationships. And it doesn't matter who you deal with. You have to deal with every person in the same way. 
And I really do. I really do believe part of it comes from faith, and my wife's a better example of it than I am. I really believe that that we ought to act in a way that really reflects that we believe that every person we encounter is a child of God. That's a kind of a great message for someone, for everybody, and whether your career is starting out, is you, you treat everybody that way. You, it, it's just absolutely uh, essential, and I don't think you can treat Ross Perot or the grocery store checkout person any differently, and um, I, I just think that's that's essential. Tom, one last question. You've answered a million questions over the years, probably. What has no one asked you that you wish someone would over, over your time? Well, I think the interesting question I'd like to ask Kevin and Margaret is they both abandoned me to grab onto a more dynamic, charismatic figure in <laughs> 43 and left me in the shade. Oh, I mean, man. and it was just so obvious what was happening. <laughs> they just left me on the curb and this bright shiny face came by but i've gotten over it i've gotten over it i really have well in typical tom loose fashion he doesn't make it about himself (laughs) how can we end it except on that tom this has been wonderful thank you so much for taking the time to do it i know you're busy and best of luck with texas 2036 thank you so much thanks for having me we're on the phone now with tom loose to update our earlier conversation and Boy, do we have a lot to talk about since then. So we spent some time talking about you as a Dallasite and a Texan, and and you've seen a lot. So I'd like to start just by letting you reflect and provide some of your perspective on what's been going on with everything from COVID to the racial justice movement. Just go ahead and and opine for a minute. Oh, my goodness. You know, I was um, thinking about that. I'm having a conversation with my grandsons tonight, and I told them I want to talk about the perfect storm 2020. And in my mind, that's a toxic stew we're faced with in our country right now, which is the pandemic, social justice, racial divide, economic uh, circumstances we find ourselves in, the dramatic sudden unemployment across the country, um, the worldwide nature of this pandemic, the social media phenomena we're seeing, cultural divide, all underlaid by presidential politics. It's um, the only time I can recur and uh, recall uh, that is even halfway similar, and it's only halfway, is 1968. I, I lived through that, and I thought the country was uh, in many ways coming apart in 1968, but this is a toxic stew and we we need to get our act together and we need to deal with and proactively shape the new normal because we're going to have a new normal. And the question is, is it going to happen the right way? So were there lessons out of the 1960s that apply now? Like what can we take from that era and have we made any real progress since then? Well, it's depressing to somebody my age. I I think a lot of it we didn't get right in that what is, yes, we made an enormous amount of progress in um, addressing the issues of race in our country since 1968. 
but my generation failed to adequately address it. And just that one aspect alone stands out to me is, you know, I feel like it at my age, my generation, uh, you know, we do talk about with, with good reason, the progress we made, but obviously we didn't overcome the issues we all hoped we would. And I would say in 1968, the economic conditions were not as bad as they are. I mean, we basically, we've never had job losses of this magnitude in this abrupt amount of time. I mean, it was crash, bam, thank you, ma'am. We went from, you know, 3% unemployment to 20% unemployment in a short period of time. That's a very, that's, I don't think that's ever recalled in our country. Even in the Great Depression, it occurred over multiple years. Have I cheered you up, Andrew? Have I cheered you up? <laughs> you know, no, uh, no, you haven't. Not quite yet. But, you know, sometimes you got to fight through the tough conversations, and, and then we can be cheered up once we have some lasting, significant change, you know? Surely. And that's what I, I mean. What What is important is... Um, a an earthquake occurred, the landscape has been altered, and the question is, what's that landscape going to look like, and what are we going to make of this? Uh, it can happen to us, or we can make it happen the way we want it to. And I think that um, uh, it's, it's possible. There's going to be transformational change. I think we've already seen some indications of that. But like in any transformational change, it's going to be some ups and downs, and it's going to take real leadership. And um, it's uh, so it's important that everybody, you know, my favorite saying is in a democracy, you get what you deserve. And it's going to be up to us from this point forward to make of this what we can. Well, we talked a lot about education in our first conversation, and, and President Bush has called education an urgent civil rights issue. As an education guy, what do you see the role of education being um, as we move forward? Well, it's got to be huge, and, and unfortunately, his, his message of the bigotry of low expectations, and the, he was so profound in, in really announcing, pronouncing, repeating that education was the new civil rights movement. And he sustained that, but we lost that momentum and we've got to pick it back up. For instance, Bob Moses, he was a prominent African-American um, leader, minister, civil rights movement. He said many, many, many years ago, algebra is the new fundamental civil right of, of the African-American community. And he was saying algebra. And, you know, he was he was saying those words even before President Bush and was speaking to this very issue of the bigotry of low expectations. So we have to address these fundamental issues. So I, I think... I think something a lot of people are trying to figure out is is what can we do differently and, and how can we have more productive conversations? And I think a lot of that starts at the individual level. So I would ask you, Tom, what you're going to be doing differently. Yes, but I, I want to challenge the concept that this is, um, 
we have to do more than talk about this and listen in that we have to move to policy solutions. And, you know, that may be because of my policy background, but for instance, if you talk about um, protests now about police brutality, what changes do we want to make in policy that govern um, our law enforcement officers? I mean, we would all say, we, we need order in our society. We also need law, by the way. So I don't I mean, I mean, I've heard some conversation lately about, you know, we have to have order. Well, that phrase is law in order. And what should the law be that governs uh, the way we enforce our laws? And we, we've got to get specific. What changes do we want to make and how police investigate crimes, arrest people, whatever those changes are, we need to have concrete policy discussions. And we have to have concrete policy discussions about housing. You know, one of the issues that we face in our, uh, in many of our communities is lack of affordable housing. Well, that can be a sensitive public uh, policy topic. You know, I don't want a uh, multifamily housing project in my single family neighborhood. Well, I understand, but that leads to more expensive housing. So you have to get concrete about some of these things, and that requires some frank debate and give and take to reach policy prescriptions that the public will buy into. And we need leaders who will provide the leadership and communicate the reasons why and why one plus one equals three. Well, and the other big issue going on in the world still is COVID-19. Um, and your organization, Texas 2036, is really built on the premise that data can help better inform tough decisions. So with that lens, what do you think the best moves are for Texas and other states that are struggling with having lost so much classroom time for, for our kids? Well, clearly, I mean, there's just so many different issues we face in the education space. But I mean, for most of my adult life, we've argued about the loss of learning time in the summer. <laughs> but now the summer is going to be March to probably September. And we cannot afford to let our children miss, in essence, a year of education. Time on task, I once learned when I first worked in education, was a, a fancy word educators used that you and I would just say, yeah, you know, you spend more time studying algebra, it's probably going to make a difference. Well, time on task matters. And we're, we are the lagger in the whole rest of the world about time we spend on task in education. That's got to stop. We wouldn't let our Olympic athletes train for global competition by working out less days. It's ridiculous that we, we don't spend more time uh, in the classroom. And again, that raises issues of the digital divide. How do we do it safely? How do we do it in ways that children can be safe? But we cannot just say, well, uh, our kids get 
two or three years off until we get a vaccine or let's say it's a year off. We, we can't, we can't let a year go by. Yeah, so we, we've got to let you go here in a second, but have time for one more. So following up there, we already have an achievement gap in our schools. And like you said, that, that gap isn't helped by the digital divide and COVID-19 is only making things worse. So what can we do to close that gap in this environment? Well, we, we have to be honest with ourselves that, that that gap is real. We've kidded ourselves in many ways, in many ways since President Bush left office that, quote, you know, you don't understand. We are, you know, we have a diverse population. We're not like China. We're not like Asia. We're not like X. We're not like Z. I mean, it doesn't matter. Uh, the fact of the matter is we're behind the rest of the world in our rigor and what we require of our students. And we have to face the reality that we need to do better and we're not doing enough to help our students prepare themselves for the 21st century. And we have to be real about that and rigorous about that. And I know President Bush has always felt that way about him, and bless him for it. But we need it more than ever now. Well, Tom, thanks again for spending a few minutes with us here to to close out what we started a few months ago. And so really appreciate it. And Tom, be careful out there. Stay healthy, and and we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Y'all take care. To learn more about Texas 2036, visit texas2036.org. And you can also learn more about the Bush Institute's work in education reform at bushcenter.org slash edreform. And if you enjoyed this episode of The Strategist, please tell a friend or give us a five-star review or just send us a note on social media at The Bush Center on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thanks for listening.